Good morning. There was a television program a few years ago, probably more than a few, that was called That Was the Week That Was. And that's sort of the way I feel about last week. But I do want to tell you that Jeanette and I are, are grateful grandparents for the uh, tenth time. And uh, as you know, the delivery of uh, Isaac Robert was successful. And uh, Jeanette remains down there to help for a while, but we are, we are glad to be uh, grandparents again. Uh, I think what I'll do is, is start by just saying, relax. There, there were a few years ago, no, a long time ago, there was somebody that I, that I loved as a brother in Christ that decided to share uh, in the Lord, during the Lord's Supper uh, to share from the Song of Solomon. And, and every time, every week, that brother would turn to the Scriptures, he would say, turn in your Bibles to the Song of Solomon. And you talk about every head bowed and every eye closed. The tension was so thick you could cut it with a knife, and you're thinking, oh, no, where is this going? And, and you, just, you, know, you just wanted to plug your ears and cover your eyes and hope it all blew over. When we come to this subject, which obviously is, is for parents, the question is, do I keep my kids in the audience? Do I cover their eyes or plug their ears or, or whatever? Notice the discretion. Do you notice that in the text? There's nothing about that text that was awkward or embarrassing to read. It is a very, very discreet Discussion of one of the most intimate and delicate subjects that could ever be addressed. And so I, I want to just say to you right at the beginning, relax. This is, it, it, we're all going to get through this. It really is important, and, and it's dealt with in such a way that I think we will come away not embarrassed, but hopefully edified. It is, having said that, uh, this whole issue of, of sanctification and sexual purity and brotherly love is the centerpiece of this epistle. Would you not agree? It's right there in the center. It is obviously a very important subject, and it is one to which Paul gives a great deal of prominence. And I would say rightly so. If you think back all the way to the book of Genesis, we know something went dreadfully wrong. I'm not sure that anybody fully understands exactly what went wrong, but we see God creating Adam and Eve, and they are naked and they are not ashamed. And something goes wrong, and the fig leaves come out, <laughs> and then the animal coverings and whatever. But something that was that was beautiful, something that was that was glorious, somehow was diminished by the act of of Adam and Eve, and it's never quite been the same since. And that I think is is a sad reality. So when you go through the scriptures, you will find that the subject of sexual immorality is a very prominent theme. And it's often the cause of the downfall either of a nation or of a particular individual. And you can, you could just tick your way through the people in the Old Testament and see how that is true with David, with Solomon, with many, many others uh, as well. So it is a prominent subject, and it is uh, something that was very, very um, prevalent in the days in which Paul wrote. I, I want to suggest to you, if you're going to buy one commentary on First and Second Thessalonians, my recommendation is the commentary by John R.W. Stott. It's probably one of the cheaper ones. In, in when I looked at Amazon uh, and the reviews, one uh, a man I think was a preacher said, "I read all those other guys, and I always come back to Stott." And, and, and frankly, I read Stott and forget the other guys. But that's another story. Uh, but let me just uh, read a quote from from Stott when he talks about the 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 tenor of that day when it comes to uh, sexual immorality. 
In his History of European Morals, William Leckie paints a turid, uh, lurid picture of sexual license during the early period of the Roman Empire. The cities of Greece, Asia Minor, and Egypt, he writes, had become centers of the wildest corruption, and innumerable slaves from these countries had spread their immorality to Rome. Indeed, there was probably ne- there's probably never been a period when vice was more extravagant or uncontrolled than it was under the Caesars. This was written a little bit ago. There may be a period in which it has been exceeded, and if that's so, it would probably be our own. There is, due to the sexual revolution that we have seen in our country, unbelievable corruption and impurity. And I would say everything that we read uh, that Paul is addressing here is, is something with which we struggle, and our country struggles in the area of immorality. By the way, some people think of pornography as, as a kind of a modern phenomena. It's not. If you think about it, it's an illicit image, right? And we think of that as a computer screen or, 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 or a piece of paper or whatever. What do you think idols were? What do you think idols were? Generally speaking, when you look at idols, or at least very often when you look at an idol, you look at an image. It's an exaggerated, distorted image that conjures up in your mind and your heart thoughts and fantasies that are wrong. And, and I'm, I'm simply saying to you, we, as, as uh, Ecclesiastes says, there's nothing new under the sun. There isn't. There isn't. And I think it was very much a part of, of that day as it is uh, in ours. So when you think about this now, Paul is writing to a group of people who have, have uh, I think, these people in particular, chapter 1, verse 9, they have turned to God from idols. These are people who are experienced in the corruption, the moral corruption of their time. These are not people, so far as I understand the text, who have grown up in Christian homes and and have had the the wonder of innocence. These are people who have seen it all and probably done it all. And so the question in their minds has to be, how in the world are things supposed to be different now that I have turned to faith in Jesus Christ? What's supposed to change? Even within the confines of marriage... The question still remains, what are the things that were a part of my past that ought not to be a part of my present and my future when it comes to the area of of sexual morality? And so Paul has spoken of that matter before, and he is raising the question again. When you look at our text, you really have three major subjects uh, that are addressed. The first is introduced in verses 1 and 2, and that is sanctification. In my opinion, that is the major dominant theme of the whole section, sanctification. Living a holy life, what kind of life the Christian ought to live as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. But I have to say to you that sanctification, while it is addressed in those first two verses, is the theme which permeates the entire section. And so sanctification involves sexual morality. It involves this issue of brotherly love as well. And it involves the area of work. (laughs) So really, sanctification encompasses every area of our life, as as I understand it. So sexual purity is addressed in verses 3 through 8. And brotherly love, not agape love, my friends, Philadelphia. Brotherly love is discussed here in verses 9 through 12. And interestingly, in the context of work or the lack thereof. So let's talk about sanctification for a minute. The word finally. Now, some of you are going to say all preachers say finally or in conclusion. I try to be honest. When I'm done, I'll let you know. And and I don't say I'm close to done when you and I both know I'm not. So I'm not going to say finally when i got that much time left on the clock. He's not saying it's almost over. There's too much material left to deal with. 
What he's really saying is something like, and now. Or maybe, to put it like this, he would say, and now let me get to my, what I've really been working up to. Let me get to my point. Uh, I think that's more what he's saying uh, by using that word. But let's think about what this text teaches us then about sanctification. I've already said it's the main dominant topic of the entire section. Uh, and so it's the, it's the major theme under which these other subjects are dealt with and addressed. It is not a new topic for Paul or the Thessalonians. If you look at verses 1 and 2 and verse 6 and verse 11, he's saying, as I taught you before. These are things that Paul has spoken to them about. The reason I mention that is we know that Paul was not there that long, right? He was not in Thessalonica that long. He was driven out of town, forced out of town, before he planned to leave. But when he writes to them, he tells them that this is a matter that he's already discussed. And and so my point is this. If it's one of the first things that Paul spoke to these believers about, then it must be a priority with Paul. Sanctification must have been a very important subject or he wouldn't have addressed it so early in the spiritual education of these Thessalonians. It is not optional. When you look at the, the way the text begins... It starts out with a sort of asking uh, mode. We request and exhort. But it quickly moves, does it not? It quickly moves to Paul saying, unless you think that I'm just saying this is a friendly suggestion that I'm making to you, he says, this is the command of Christ. Remember, he does that again uh, in, in 1 Corinthians 14 when he talks about the participation of women. And he says, if anybody wants to argue with me, let him agree to this. This is the command of Christ. Paul's instructions are not his opinion. I would also add in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, when Paul gives his opinion, he makes it clear that's his opinion and not necessarily binding. When you come to this text, he's saying sanctification is our Lord's command. He is the master. And beyond that, he says, if one chooses to disregard this teaching, let him know that the Lord is the avenger of these things. In other words, if you ignore this teaching, you're going to deal with God or more accurately, God is going to deal with you. It is serious business to neglect what Paul has to say on the subject of sanctification. It is the purpose for which we were called. He, as in uh, chapter 1, he's the one who chose us. Now Paul says he chose us to be holy. And so it is God's purpose and we dare not neglect it. It is God's will. This is the will of God, your sanctification. Now, let me just pause there for a minute. All kinds of people, I I hear the question over and over again, and, and I see it repeated back to me in many ways, but the question is basically this. How do I know the will of God? And, and very often the question is asked in terms of sort of minute things. Do I buy a Ford or a Chevrolet? Well, I could tell you what my will is on that, but it doesn't matter. The point is that God has told us the major area of his concern, and that is our holiness. And a lot of people are, are off nitpicking on these details when if you answer the big one, it answers a host of little questions. And I would say 95% of all the questions people ask about, is it the will of God, are answered by the major statements about God's will like this. It is God's will for you to be holy. It is God's will for you to glorify him. So you ask the question, is this holiness... Holiness, by the way, sanctification means to be set apart. So one of the things that you must ask is, when I do this or don't do this, does it distinguish me from the world? 
Does it set me apart in some way in which I'm not a part of, of the normal f- uh, force of the culture? As Paul says in Romans 12, I'm not letting the world press me into its mold. So when you ask those major questions, most of the minor ones are answered, and, and I think that's true here. By the way, that's why Paul does not find it necessary to answer a whole lot of particular questions about sexual morality. Can you imagine the kinds of things that could be asked? But if the statement is made, my sexual morality is to be unlike that of the world, unlike that of my past, it is to glorify God and be pleasing to him, then that answers a lot of issues. Okay, I've already said rejecting or ignoring this matter has serious consequences. He is the avenger, it says. If I take advantage of someone in this area, God's going to deal with me. God's going to deal with me as the avenger of that wrong. That is serious, serious business. And especially in a culture that takes those sins so lightly. In fact, they don't even take it to be sin at all. It's just the way it is, they would say. Sanctification is not static. It is progressive. I would say, you get this statement twice repeated in this text. Do this more and more. When Paul writes to the Thessalonians, he is not writing to people like the Corinthians. <laughs> I, I, I get the feeling, by the way, Paul is writing Thessalonians from Corinth, almost certainly. And, and, and so when he writes to the Corinthians, it, it's like he's saying, you've been bad boys. And, and now he's just going to just just go on and tell them all the things that are wrong. Here's a man living with his father's wife. Here are you Corinthians going and have uh, going to court with one another. Bad, bad, he says. Here is people who are eating meats offered to idols. He doesn't say that to the Thessalonians. He says to the Thessalonians, "You've been doing well, but you don't arrive. You don't arrive." You just keep moving. Can you imagine what it would be like for a business that has a, a, a wonderful product and, and they have this rush of popularity and success? If that business did nothing in the realm of research and development, nothing in the realm of producing the product more efficiently uh, and cheaply, uh, distributing it better, and, and more importantly, growing the business to where you now encompass new products, how long are you going to last? It's the same way with our spiritual life. You don't come to a point and arrive. That's the problem I have with with what we might call triumphalism. That's the problem I have with any version of Christianity which says, if you experience this, if you do this, then you've arrived. Paul says, I forget the things of the past and I press on for the high calling, the prize of the high calling of Christ. Over and over again, the scriptures call us to press on. Yes, we are to do the right things at the moment, but we are to move on. And and so uh, sanctification is progressive, not static. We'll talk about this a little bit more, but it's, it's really, I think, moving from those things which are rather glaring sins to those things which are more subtle. I, I would say when Paul moves to this whole issue of sexual morality, he's going behind closed doors. He's dealing with things that won't be evident in public, but are evident in private. And those are the kinds of things, I think, that we'll, that we'll find in our sanctification. It's those glaring things happen early on, or should, and, and we come to the more subtle elements of, of things that are wrong in our lives as we, as we progress in our sanctification. Seventh, it is about pleasure. It is about pleasure. <laughs> God's pleasure. Sanctification is seeking to know what pleases God. That's what it's about. Notice Ephesians chapter 5. Verse 10, he's saying the same thing in the context of sexual morality. Seeking to learn what is pleasing to God. 
That's what the Christian life ought to be like. The Christian's pleasure should be bringing pleasure to God. And so our goal is to discover what is it that displeases God and what is it that pleases Him. Sanctification is pursuing the things which give God pleasure. Okay, about sex. That's verses 3 through 8. First of all, sexual purity is an essential part of our sanctification. You cannot be sanctified apart from addressing the whole issue of sexual purity. Friends, that's married or unmarried. That's every single individual who is listening to my voice needs to come to terms with the issue of sexual purity. That's what Paul is calling all of his readers, including us, to do. Hey, here's the thing I think we need to understand. When you think about total depravity, total depravity is not saying a man is as wicked as he could be in every area of his life. What it is saying is sin affects and impacts everyone in every area of their life. If that is true, and I think we would all agree that it is, I would hope we would all agree that it is, if that is true, then sanctification has to go to those same areas, every single dimension of our life. It has to go to those areas and ask the question, how have things changed or how should things change as a result of trusting in Jesus Christ for salvation? And my favorite text for that is Ephesians chapter 4, starting at verse 17 and going through chapter 5, about verse 10. It's in those verses and many others that deal with it too. Paul talks about putting off these things and putting on these other things that are manifestations of God's holiness in our life. But in that text, he tells us, here are things that once characterized you as, as pagan unbelievers. And here is the way in which your life needs to change. You need to change in terms of the way in which you deal with other people. Your goal is to speak the truth in love. And you are to choose your words in such a way that they bring blessing and benefit to other people. Your speech is now a manifestation of grace if you are a Christian. And you have to ask, what are the things about my speech that are not gracious and not glorifying to God. Those need to go. So he says you ought to stop lying and speak the truth to one another because we're now people of the truth. He says to the thief, you are to stop stealing and you are to labor with your own hands. Now, as a Christian, you see the person in need and you work to meet that need. In the past, you saw the person who was weak and vulnerable as the person from whom you could take their resources and use them for yourself. It's a reversal, a reversal, an inversion of values and thinking. So it's a very essential element in our sanctification, dealing with the sexual aspect of our lives. Now, I would say in a negative way, sanctification requires abstaining from sexual immorality. That's a pretty big, pretty glaring no. And there are all kinds of things that we could talk about. When Paul talks about it here, he uses the word porneia, not the word technically for adultery, but the broader word for all forms of illicit sexual thinking or activity. Any, any, anything that's outside the boundaries of what God has called holy, that is to be set aside. And for these people, my friends, for these people who were born into a culture of heathenism, there were so many things that had to change. And by the way, when you look at your television screen and you watch what's happening in all, our culture, there is so much that has to be set aside in terms of the values and, and, and the actions of people pertaining to sex. Set aside sexual immorality. But in the positive way, sexual purity is seeing sex differently. What I am not saying is that we ought to be 
and I'll use the word puritanical, not because it's accurate, but because that's the description that some will use of Christian views of sex, that they would think that somehow sex is something that is inherently evil or wicked or dirty. Uh, Some Christians might think that sex is only for the purpose of producing children. It's not. It's something that's beautiful that God has given And we ought to see it in that light. So it is looking on the whole area of sexuality in a different way, contrary to the way we thought and we acted as unbelievers. And that really is verses 3 through 5. Get this. Sanctified sex should be spirit-led. Did you ever think about that? I, I, I think that most people think when you close that door that somehow you just close the Holy Spirit and all of that out there, that's not what this text tells me. It says, if you disregard what God is saying about sanctity in the area of sex, then you are disregarding the Holy Spirit. Sanctification is about being holy. The Holy Spirit works in us to move us to holiness. And if we are to be holy in the sexual aspects of our lives, then we must be dependent upon the Spirit as strange as that may sound to our ears. Privacy. Closed doors don't keep God out. That's the horrible thing that's happened in our country, is the principle of privacy somehow has closed the door to government. And it's said, anything that happens behind closed doors, anything that happens in private is people's own business. And the government has no right to intervene, to question, to whatever. It's, it's behind closed doors. I love this story in 2 Kings chapter 6. It isn't about sex, but it is about a bedroom door, folks. You remember when the king of Syria was attacking Israel? This is during the days of Elisha. King of Syria was attacking Israel. He would make his plans in, in, in private. And, and Elisha would be given those plans, would go to the king of Israel and say, this is where the Syrians are going to attack. And so everything they did was frustrated, not because Israel was stronger, but because Israel was smarter. They always knew what the next move of the Syrian enemy was. And the king of Syria is madder than a wet hen. And he calls all his people in and says, some of you people are talking to the press. You're doing something that you shouldn't do. And I'm going to find out who it is. And somebody says to the king, King, whatever you say behind your bedroom door is known to God. And God makes it known to his prophet. I want to just say, everything we do behind that closed door, God knows about. And God holds us accountable for that. God does not respect, in that sense... He does not respect our privacy when it comes to sin. He deals with sin. Now, we're getting to the heart, I think, of of what Paul's words really are getting to in this whole area of sexual morality in the life of the Christian. Sanctified sex, he says, first of all, is a matter of self-control over one's body. Now, I I have to tell you this, and if you've looked at the commentaries and read anything, you know this is true. Verse 4 is the most problematic verse in all of 1 Thessalonians. What does it mean to possess one's own vessel? The question, of course, is what does vessel mean? It can be used with respect to one's wife. It can be used with respect to one's body. The word possess is is often rendered in the sense of acquire. And so usually it's talking about somebody who's bought a piece of property or acquired something, one thing or another, you purchased it. It seems to me, uh, and, and at least this is my point of view, that it's not about, it's not saying to a man, Here's how you need to possess your wife. Because I don't think that's the right way of thinking about the relationship of a husband and wife when it comes to, to physical intimacy. I don't think so. And, and I'll, I'll deal with that in just a minute. I think he's saying you need to take control, to take charge of your own life in the, in the area of self-control because the characteristic of heathen religion is unbridled self-indulgence. Now, 
Think back just a couple of instances with me and get a little flavor of this. Moses on the mountain, Exodus 32. And, and God says to Moses, you better get back down there. That bunch is in trouble already. Remember, they had Aaron make a golden calf. Aaron declares worship. And, and it says the people rose up to eat and drink and play. Uh, the, the play there is not horseshoes, dominoes, and bingo. It is talking about illicit sexual activity. When Moses comes down and sees Israel, remember he says, what, what, is, what is this noise? It sounds like the sound of war. It was chaos because there was absolute abandonment in, in this whole business of self-indulgence. There was absolutely no self-control. They were just casting it aside. And remember, God had to use force to get this thing back under control. You see a similar thing in Numbers 25 with the Moabite women and what took place, and God again has to take charge. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, in those early verses of chapter 10, Paul is talking about the same thing, and he's basically saying immorality and and disobedience to God is characterized by a lack of self-control. It's just unbridled self-indulgence. What is happening, I believe, is in that context of meats being offered to idols is not only it isn't it isn't what where the meat came from it's where you are when you eat it i believe that eating meats offered to idols means going to idol worship and participating in the unbridled undisciplined self-indulgence of that and paul says that's what destroyed israel and that's what your problem is as well. That's why you've got to deal with this thing. And that's why I believe in the Jerusalem Council they said you must abstain from meats offered to idols. Because it wasn't the meat that defiled. It was the ceremony that went with the meat that defiled and was all of this self-indulgence. Is it any surprise to you that people would go, let's say, on Saturday night to the idol feast and be self-indulgent and then come to the Lord's Supper and be self-indulgent there, self-indulgent in terms of wanting to dominate by speaking to show people how spiritual you are, wanting to pig out on the food before the other people could come who needed it more than you did. I think it's very clear that there's a whole issue of self-indulgence, and that's what Paul is talking about here. There needs to be a self-control that takes place. Now, I think you also see that this is a partnership, if I can use that word, because the Holy Spirit is the Spirit, as Paul says to Timothy, who produces love and power and self-discipline. Or in Galatians chapter 5, the fruit of the Spirit is self-control. But in 2 Peter chapter 1, Paul is talking to Christians and he's telling them that they ought to pursue these things and one of the things they should pursue is self-control. So the Spirit of God empowers people to have self-control. It is also something that Christians need to enter into and engage in so that they control unbridled passions. And it's those passions, by the way, that are often the point of appeal. Second Peter, false teachers. Uh, Revelation chapter 2, verse 20. Jezebel is in the midst of the church there. And she is corrupting people with her immorality. Bad theology and bad morality go together. And often the way to corrupt people is to climb under the covers with them first. And then they'll change their thinking. I believe that's true in Proverbs. I believe it's true throughout the uh, scriptures. Self-control. Next point. Sanctified sex respects boundaries. See, if I understand this correctly, here's what I see the, the, the division being uh, as Paul is, is, is addressing it in this text. He's saying, get control of yourself through the Holy Spirit and through discipline in your life. That'll make you different from the, the Thessalonians around you. Get control of things in your life and don't be uncontrolled in your pursuit of passions. He's now saying, I believe, 
don't try to take control of the other person. Now he's looking at this other dimension. Now, let me, let me uh, see if I, can, if I can play that out here. One is the area of authority. We're talking about the abuse here that one has with respect to others. We were talking about sanctity in relationship to my own life, married or unmarried. Now we're talking about sanctification as it relates, as my relationship bears on other people. I am not to take advantage of them. And you can do that in the realm of authority, I think. I think many times behind closed doors, it is the authority card that is played. And if I understand the scriptures correctly, it's the wrong card. You don't play the authority card in this area of, of the intimacy of a husband and wife. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and you're going to say, wait a minute, in those first verses, Paul says, the man doesn't have authority over his body, but his wife does. The point there is, neither of them has authority. It, it, what it's not saying is, in, in 1 Corinthians 7, the husband is the head of the wife, and therefore he is the boss, and he is the dictator in this area of life. That is not what it says. It says, neither one of you is to use authority, leverage, on the other partner. Because that's not really love. That's just force. And, and you can play out that to its extreme if you want in your mind. Convictions. This is one of my passions, my convictions. And whenever I talk to, to a young couple about marriage, one of the things I say is one area where authority doesn't cut it is convictions. Nobody has the right to exercise their authority to force another person to violate their convictions. And oftentimes, I think what happens within marriage is you have two people, a husband and wife, who have come out of two different backgrounds and, and has two different sets of values and has two different sets of, may I use the word, boundaries uh, that, that bear on their relationship. I think it's absolutely wrong for either the husband or the wife to play heavy-handed with their mate and cause them to surrender what they believe to be a conviction that God has given them about their conduct. That would be taking advantage, in my understanding. It would be what Paul is saying not to do. Not to use control, not to use authority, not to use whatever power you have to move somebody contrary to their conviction. And let's just talk about weakness. I think this is what Peter's talking about in 1 Peter chapter 3 when he's talking to husbands about wives and you are to honor your wife as the weaker vessel. I think that he's talking here about recognizing weakness and rather than taking advantage or using that weakness as we are inclined to do, you are to honor that weakness and to deal with someone. And so when, remember in the context of Romans chapter 14 and 15, you don't force other people in their convictions, convictions and you bear with the weaknesses of your brothers and sisters in that area. And so I think we have to be very, very careful about control. So here's what I see in the, in the two major areas. The major contribution of Paul in this text is to say, let's talk about control. Get control over your life and don't be like the culture you live in. You do that through the Spirit, not through gritting your teeth, but get control of this area of your life. But don't work at controlling your mate. That's stepping outside of the bounds. That's taking advantage. That's violating boundaries that I think are inappropriate. Now we move on to brotherly love and work. It is, as I pointed out, brotherly love, not uh, agape or agapao that we're talking about here. Notice that they have done well in this area. God has taught them well. But I think once again, he's moving to the more subtle areas of their, of their lives. And here's the way I think I understand this. He's saying, again, by the way, this is a matter of personal discipline. 
Discipline was involved in the self-control, talked about in, in terms of sexuality. It's also the issue here. So in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, twice the word undisciplined is used, and, and once the word unruly is used in the New American Standard Version. But it's clear that there is an undisciplined dimension or aspect of their lives so that they are not working. Now, here's the thing that I find very interesting. Paul plays with words here, and he he uses this in terms of they don't work, they're working at nothing, he's saying, and then the same word is used at working around. Now, I don't know about how you use that term, but have you ever heard about a workaround? You know, it's where you have this problem and you have this workaround where you sort of go around to the side to get it, get to it and get it solved. There are people who work around, but they work around work. And, and oftentimes I think there's a line in the road because I think that what they do is they say to themselves, Oh, you know, I care about brother so-and-so or sister so-and-so. And so I need to be doing this. I need to be going over there and doing this or that and spending time. The reality against which Paul warns the widows in 1 Timothy 5 is that you go around and you become a busybody and a gossip. That's why he says in Titus chapter 3 and verse 5 that older women are to teach younger women to be workers at home. And I think what happens is in 1 Timothy 5, you have these widows who, who are, are, are going around from house to house. They have the freedom of, of time and, and they're going around and actually they're doing harm rather than good. And what Paul is saying here is if you really love your brother, then you're not going to sap away at the resources that he has so that you can do your, your uh, self-indulgent trip as it were, of not working and and whether you call it ministry or serving or whatever it is, you're actually doing something detrimental. Caveat. This is not talking about people who are unemployed who can't find work. It's very clear in the book of Acts that, that Christians were generous toward one another in the area of people having needs. We're talking about people who could work, who have jobs available to them, but who won't work. And it's because they have an undisciplined, lazy, parasitic kind of life. And Paul says that kind of thing needs to be dealt with. Now remember chapter 1 and chapter 2 when Paul is talking about his lifestyle amongst them, he worked when he didn't have to. That qualifies him to say what he does here, and it certainly qualifies him to say what he does in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. If a man doesn't work, neither should he eat. In fact, failing to work is an area for church discipline in some form, as you see it there. Don't associate with that one. So we're talking about those who genuinely can work, but who don't want to and who have some kind of pious aura about their uh, unemployed status to where they expect others to carry their freight, as it were, uh, in the lifestyle they've gotten. Brotherly love puts other people's interests above your own. Brotherly love makes sacrifices to minister to others. It does not look at others ministering to you. Do you see the common... A commonality between sex and, and, and work. Improper, immoral sex is using it to gratify yourself at the expense of others. That's precisely what he's talking about in work. You're using other people's resources to care for you as opposed to you working to minister to them. Same basic issue. All right, I'll go ahead and say it. Is socialism spiritual? I don't think so. Because what it does is it encourages people to back off, to work less, because other people are going to make up for it. If you believe in the depravity of man, you know socialism is not going to work, friends. It just isn't. I had to say it. I'll go on. Now I'm going to conclude. This is the 4th of July. I have to tell you that the first sermon I ever remember preaching, I don't remember anything about it, and I'm sure I'm glad I don't, 
first sermon I ever preached was in the mountains in the state of Washington before I ever came down to seminary, and it was on the 4th of July weekend, and I preached on freedom. And uh, some of you may say to yourself, why in the world isn't he waving flags and doing all the patriotic stuff today? The freedom that really matters is the freedom that Christ brings from bondage to sin. And that's the freedom that Paul's talking about here. What he does not want Christians to do is to return to the bondage that they once were in as unbelievers. He wants them to enjoy the freedom that they have in order to honor Christ and to serve other people. So it's the freedom from the power of sin, freedom from the penalty of sin, freedom from the guilt of sin. That's where real freedom is. Secondly, sanctification is a matter of divine enablement and human responsibility. The scriptures are really clear. This is something we need to engage in, not passively sit back and let God do it all. But it is also something that only happens through him who called us and through him who gives us his spirit to work in us. We need to be actively engaged in sanctification. It continues to go deeper and deeper. It continues, in my opinion, to get more and more subtle. And so it, it, it's, it's like our sin finds ways of concealing itself, often in ways that look pious. I was thinking about that. When you look at false religion, they're, they're basically all self-indulgent. Let me just give you an example. Why do you think anybody would ever blow themselves up and a bunch of others unless they thought there were 39 virgins waiting for them? It's self-indulgence. It's not sacrifice. That's moving up, isn't it? And, and really, all pagan religion is like that. And so I said to myself, what about Judaism? What about Judaism? How do, you, how do you say that about unbelieving Jews? It's the same thing. What you do is you take the good laws that God has given and you twist them to where they're self-serving and they make you self-indulgent. Uh, the giving of, uh, of offerings, of, of, of benevolence, can be self-serving. If you do it publicly and you do it for men's applause, it works for you. Yes, you're being obedient, but the reality is you're serving yourself. Prayers, long, windy ones out in front of everybody, you're indulging yourself. These things, the Lord Jesus says, are, are flat out wrong. When, when Jesus talks about the Corban issue, the law said you're to take care of your elderly parents. They figured out a way of saying, I'll devote this to God. That looks spiritual. Everybody thinks how pious I am. The reality is I move that money out of the fund that takes care of my parents and I put it in my vacation fund. I call it devoted to God. It's self-indulgent. So even the good word and works of God can be corrupted in a way that can be turned into things that are self-indulgence. Self-indulgence is a big issue that needs to be dealt with. And I think sanctification goes down to root it out. Sanctification is all-encompassing. There are no areas out of bounds to sanctification. There are no areas that are safe and that we need to disregard them thinking they're already okay. They're not. Sanctification goes behind closed doors. By the way, I thought about this one. I think that primarily Paul is addressing those who are married. But I was thinking about those two principles, the principle of self-control and the principle of not violating the rights of the other, not encroaching on the boundaries or rights of the other. That's good stuff for the father-son talk, is it not? And the mother-daughter talk? Is that not the prince? Are those not the principles that ought to guide the relationships of, of unmarried, believing children? They ought to be told the issue is self-control. And that's what God's going to deal with. And God's going to be the avenger. If you take advantage of somebody, God's going to be the avenger. Those ought to be sobering thoughts for kids who are dating. They ought to be the things that we can talk about. And frankly, they're a whole lot less embarrassing than some of the things that we parents are afraid to raise with our kids uh, about that whole matter. Okay, two questions for you to consider as I close. One, 
if the, if the Spirit of God were working through Paul and he was to write a letter to you about your sanctification, what's the area in your life he would raise first? If he knew your life as God knows your life, what would be the area that God would speak to you or to me about? And I'm hoping that maybe that question will hang in your mind because I'm guessing based on Scripture and the fact that the Spirit convicts of sin, I'm guessing that something's going to pop into your mind either right now or soon and to say, you know, I've been thinking about that uh, or I haven't been thinking about it and should. Every one of us has areas that need to be addressed in terms of sanctification. It may be these, it may be others. The second question I have is, what are you going to do about it? It's that simple. What are you going to do about it? What am I going to do about it? God's will is for us to be holy. That's what sanctification's about. Now, I don't want to be misunderstood as saying God's will is for unbelievers to try to clean up their life and their acts so that God will be pleased and let them into heaven. That's not the point. You are only declared righteous by the shed blood of Jesus Christ. But you were called not only to salvation, if he's chosen you for salvation, you were called to be holy. And God is going to work in that way in your life. Those are areas, if they are important to him, they should be important to you and to me. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the work of the Lord Jesus. Thank you for the cleansing from sin that came through his shed blood. Thank you for the freedom from guilt and the fear of judgment. Father, now we we ask that uh, the purpose for which you have called us, the purpose of being holy and glorifying you, would be furthered in our lives. Would your spirit speak to us about those areas in our lives, perhaps areas behind closed doors, perhaps areas that even our mate is not aware of, because they may be areas that are only being entertained in our minds. Father, may you convict us of those areas. May you work in our lives to make us people who are set apart and distinct and who delight in pleasing you to your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.